Good morning. Let's take our Bibles to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is eventually where we're going to find ourselves today. A few comments as we get going. First of all, Dr. Davis did tell me that I cheated on the psalm series because while I have 26 verses, you actually take a look through it, and 50% of it is just repetition. Great fluff. Works in Psalm 136 will not work in your papers that you have due in a few weeks for project deadline. I also wanted to take a few of my precious minutes at the beginning here to give a public service announcement to those gentlemen who are planning on bringing a date to the play that is coming up. Now, those of you who are already engaged and are already married and are planning on bringing your significant other, I trust you have already learned this lesson, but if not, please take this as value. Men, when you start to go to pick up your dates to walk very slowly up from the dorms or wherever you are coming from, I want to give you a little piece of wisdom, and it's this. Your words have meanings, so be careful what you say. For example, here you are, standing outside, waiting for your dates to come out to the door, and maybe you are like pretty good at this, so you have flowers. Or maybe you're even better at that, so you have candy. Or maybe you have like reached the pinnacle of dating for artist series, and instead of any of those, you have a handmade bouquet out of those little bubble packing things. You know, the stuff that you pop? Because nothing says fun back in the dorms like popping those particular bubbles. And your date comes out, and she also is very good at this whole dating thing, and she gives you a little gift, and that might be candy, kind of, you know, level one. But, you know, the top level as far as what she's going to give you is a small little Nerf pistol that you can use in your room should your roommate become annoying that evening. <laughs> Best gift ever that my, Heidi, that my wife gave me while we were dating. And she tells you ahead of time that she, quote, doesn't have much time to prepare, which, let me interpret that, still means she spent ten times as long as you did getting yourself all dressed up. And she comes out to you, and she has her special dress on and her special hair, the exchange of gifts, and she asks you the question, how do you like my dress? And suddenly, your life just became a Robert Frost poem. (laughs) Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and what you answer will truly make all the difference. And you, because you are not wise and you are not listening in chapel to the wisdom from an older brother in Christ, you say these words. Looks good. I heard a little comment there. Oh, no, that is the correct thing that's going through her mind at that point in time. And you think never in my life in the dorms has a guy who put on his wrinkly shirt and his unmatched tie that's tied too short or too long and puts on his mismatched coat going to church. When he asks me, how do I look? I just respond, good, which means it's fine. That's not the way to answer. And suddenly you realize, because of your date's response, that you chose the wrong path. What do you mean, good? And suddenly it comes to your mind that there are different things things that good can mean. How was your day? My day was good, meaning normal day, nothing really bad happened. Is that what you want her to think about her dress? 
What about, that was a good meal, but it wasn't a great meal. Oh, so now she's not great. Now she's just good. And you're thinking, the way I meant it, the way I wanted her to take it, is she was amazing. All right. If you find yourself with that road, can I encourage you? The more syllables you use in your answer, the better off you will be. I would recommend at least three syllables. And here are your options, men. Amazing. Three. Outstanding. Three. Breathtaking. Three. And if you are about ready to pop the question, use a four-syllable word. Spectacular. Because while you might have meant good with meaning all those things, words have meanings, depending on context, depending on how we take them. You say, well, what's the point? Well, the point is I would prefer not to have to do a whole lot of relational counseling after this weekend, so be careful. But number two, specific to what we're looking at here, words have meanings, and we have to understand the correct meaning to understand the correct message. In Psalm 136, verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. It might seem very straightforward, but there are three terms within this verse that we have to understand correctly in order to get the rest of what is actually being said. And so we are going to give some meanings and definitions to start off with. The first one is this simple question, what does it mean to give thanks? It is more than simply saying thank you for something and showing a, giving a verb, a word of thanksgiving. In fact, if we were to look up its usages elsewhere in Scripture, you might come across 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 33, where Solomon, his prayer of dedication, says, And when your people turn again to thee and confess your name. That's the same word we see here in chapter 1, in, a, in verse 1. Confess. It means to publicly acknowledge, which, by the way, is going to include thanksgiving, gratitude, and praise. But you are acknowledging who God is, later on in verse 35 of the same chapter, and they pray towards your place and they confess your name. What are they doing? They are renewing their allegiance. When God says give thanks, it means more than just list off a bunch of things we're thankful for. It means we acknowledge God for who he is, which, by the way, includes all the good gifts he gives us, and will result in thanksgiving, and will result in praise. But it's bigger than that. It has the idea of public, too. A public acknowledging of it. Where do we get the public part from? Well, the command in verse 1, give thanks, and then the command again repeated in verse 26, give thanks. What is it? It's a plural. All use guys. All y'all. However you want to say it. We are commanded to give thanks together. You say, well, I don't see the together there. Well, look through how the psalm is actually structured. Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Ki let olam casto. For his mercies endure forever. The next verse. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for, to the God of gods, for ki let olam casto. His mercy endures forever. There's the reader and there's the response. This psalm was meant to be one person standing in front declaring something about God and everyone else publicly acknowledging a truth about God. When we think of giving thanks, we have to think of this as all of us 
together. But are you ever given a command and wonder why? I have three children at home. This happens quite a bit. Why? And while I would like to say, because I said so, um, or even better, because I'm Batman, but that doesn't work at my house either, <laughs> this psalm gives us reasons. In fact, 27 times within this psalm, it's going to say because or for. And 26 of those 27 times are exactly the same. In other words, it gives us why we ought to acknowledge God publicly. But let's look, first of all, at the one reason that's different than the others, and that is this idea of being good. He says, I know that word. That's the word I'm not supposed to use to describe address. Yes, we've accomplished one thing today. But what does it mean within our context? Well, this construction, it is good, appears six times in the book of Genesis chapter 1. You say, well, how in the world do we know that what's happening here in Psalm 136 is connected to Genesis 1? Well, thank you for asking. Look ahead at verse 4. What does it say? To him alone that doth grace wonders, ki let alam casto. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, ki let alam casto. What is it talking about? Stretching out the earth above the waters, made great lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. It's talking about creation. The passage is pointing us back to the creation account And part of that reason is for us to understand what it means to be good. And so the six times in Genesis 1 where God looks at his creation and says, it is good, what does it mean? Well, let's run through some possibilities. Is God saying that his creation is morally upright? By the way, that would be true. This was pre-fall. Man hadn't sinned yet. But is he saying that it is sinless? Well, it kind of seems like a well-duh statement because the fall doesn't happen for a few verses later. So poss- a few chapters later. So possible, but may not be the best fit. Could God be declaring his creation to be acceptable? It's okay. Not great, but it's okay. It's kind of like you and I when we have a project and we say something like good enough for the government or we're not building a church. We did enough as a home improvement DIY project so that it's not going to fall apart. But I know if I would have spent thousands of dollars and had it professionally done, it could be improved upon. It's just acceptable. Do you think that the wise God who has all power is declaring his creation just to be okay? Or... Is he declaring his creation to be beyond improvement? When God created everything, he looked at it and said, there's no 2.0 version that's coming out. I'm not going to get into this a few millennia and think back, you know, I really wish I wouldn't have made mosquitoes. He says, perfect, beyond improvement. And by the way, Psalm 136 kind of points to this when it talks about in verse 5 the wisdom of God in creation. That the all-wise God made an absolutely perfect creation that could not be improved upon. And so when we come to Psalm 136.1 and it says God is good, it's declaring God to be perfect beyond improvement. Which is something that's really hard for us to imagine here because what are we all trying to do here? Improve our knowledge, improve our skills, improve our teaching abilities. But when it comes to God, he is perfect 
in his moral nature, perfect in his power, perfect in knowledge, availability, justice, timing, planning, provision, love, compassion, mercy, grace, everything that he is and everything that he does is perfect, can't be improved upon. Publicly acknowledge God for everything that he is and does is perfect. The second reason, then, is because his mercy endures forever. What is meant by mercies? This is a big word in the Hebrew. Hesed, you might have heard of it. It's one of the popular ones that preachers talk about. One of the best examples we have in Scripture of human-to-human steadfast love is in the 1 Samuel 20, where Jonathan, because of his loyal love to David and David's loyal love to him, they have a covenant that extends for generations to come, that they would be loyal and show this loving kindness to each other, no matter who would survive. Spoiler alert, David survives. So when we come to this idea of mercies right here, his mercy endures forever, where we are talking about God's steadfast love. His unfaltering, unfailing, uncompromising, loyal love to his people. It's steadfast, and it is going to last forever. And so with these three definitions, let's now jump into the truth. And this psalm is proclaiming to us that because God shows his steadfast love to his people, he is proclaiming that he loves steadfastly. There is one application. Publicly respond. Publicly acknowledge. Give thanks. And the rest of the chapter, the rest of the psalm, is doing, is giving proofs, if you would. Four proofs. The first two proofs have to do with the value of the steadfast love. The second two have to do with the evidence of his steadfast love. And so we look at it, verse 1, Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks unto the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 26, O give thanks unto the God of heavens, for his mercy endures forever. You know, it's one thing if you have somebody who's really loyal to you and loving to you, but they live in a cardboard box under a bridge. How much is that actually going to be of value to you? That you have a loyal follower with nothing to benefit you. But God is the king of all. God of gods, Lord of lords, superlative. He is the God of everything, and he loves his people. What's the value of that love? Infinite. In fact, in verse 26, where it says God of heaven, it's not just his people, it's the whole earth that he's talking about there. You say, well, Andrew, how do you know that? Well, thanks for asking. 24 times this particular title of God appears in the Old Testament, and every single time it appears... It's in a Gentile context. Genesis 24, Abraham's servant uses it twice when talking to Laban, a Gentile who's living outside the promised land. Jonah uses it in Jonah chapter 1, verse 9, to talk to the sailors who were Gentiles. Daniel uses it in talking to Nebuchadnezzar four times in Daniel chapter 2. The decree of Cyrus at the end of 1 Chronicles, as well as Ezra 1, 
Cyrus talks about the God of heaven who is the God of the Jews in the correspondence in Ezra seven times when the Jews were talking to the Persian government, God of heaven is used. Nehemiah, finally, in chapters 1 and 2, when he's praying in Persia about Jerusalem and he's talking to the Persian king, he prays to the God of heaven. God of heaven isn't just a title then that's talking about God's relationship to Israel. It's expanding the very end of his rulership and ultimately of his steadfast love to the rest of us. Number two, talk about the value. Let's talk about God's power. He is the one who created all things. We looked through this already. He does great wonders in verse 4. He wisely has made the heavens in verse 5. He stretched out the earth above the waters, verse 6. He made great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night. God is a powerful God. It's not just that he has authority which would raise up our estimation of his love. He also has power, which means how he wants to demonstrate his love He has the ability to actually do. Let's talk then about some of the evidences. The last two truths in this passage talk about the evidence. How do we know that he has steadfast love? We see the value, but how does he show it? By keeping his promises. Look at verse 10. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, talking about the last of the ten plagues. The ten plagues were a fulfillment of God's promises from Genesis 15, where God told Abram, you might remember this from small groups, your people going to be in bondage 400 years, I'm bringing them out, and by the way, I'm going to punish that nation that had them in slavery. What is verse 10 talking about then in Psalm 136? God keeping his promises. We see God's promise then in verse 11, bringing them out of bondage. Verse 12, describing his power. Verse 13, the Red Sea being divided, letting them rescue. Verse 14, they pass through. Verse 15, God destroys the enemies of Israel. And for hundreds of years later, the Egyptian power to try to go into Canaan was taken off the board. God keeps his promises, but it goes on. He's with them in the wilderness, verse 16. Verse 17, he smites the kings, famous kings, by the way, Sihon the Amorites, Og of Bashan, gave their land as a heritage, just like he had promised Abram in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. And he extended to Isaac and he extended to Jacob. And he told Jacob, don't worry about going down to Egypt in Genesis 46. I'm going to bring you back to this land and I'm going to give it to you. God is keeping all of his promises. Evidence of his steadfast love. But his promises, his steadfast love, doesn't just end there. We see that God also provides for the needs of his people. Once they are in the land, what happens? Verse 23. Give thanks to God who remembered us in our lowest state. Ki le'olam chasto, for his mercy endures forever. And has redeemed us from our enemies. Ki le'olam chasto, and who giveth food to all of his flesh. King le'olam chasto, 
for his mercy endures forever. What's happening here? By the way, God wasn't done with us when he brought us into the land, but what we needed, he provided. He remembered us. That remembering of God is not just him being like, that's right. Andrew Goodwill was in that problem. I remember, I think I have time to save him. That's not the remembering of God. The remembering of God is when he has us in focus so that when we're going through those low times, that lowest state, God is looking right at us and says, yep, I'm watching. And I will act in my time and my way. Just wait and trust in me. God shows his steadfast love to his people. We must publicly acknowledge him for all these things. We see the value of that in the first two points, his reign and his creation and power. We see the evidence of that in how he keeps his promises to us and how he provides needs for us. So how do we apply this? Well, look back at verse 1. Give thanks. I want to start off with broader application and then come into narrow application. Broader application, let's face the facts. This next couple of weeks, there's going to be a lot of things that are really tough. You know this whole project due date that really should be pro- like project death date thing? There's going to be some trials and tribulations. There's going to be some friendships that go on the rocks and close friends become distant friends for re- things you don't realize. There's going to be some family news that you hear. There are going to be some summer plans that were all set and are suddenly put on their head. And every single one of us, when that happens in these next few weeks is commanded in this psalm to give thanks. That's Old Testament. Okay, well, let me take you to a different one. First, Thess- First Thessalonians chapter 5. In everything, give thanks. In every type of situation, show gratitude for God, for who he is and what he has done. <laughs> kind of sounds like what we're commanded to do here. And so how do we, in light of all of that, give thanks? Could I give you some recommendations? Number one. Don't neglect your personal time with God. Because being rightly oriented to the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the God of heaven is naturally going to bring out gratitude in our life. Don't neglect your quiet time. Number two, record God's blessings when he sends them. Write it down, put it on the phone, You could even share it on social media. Do something so that you remember. Because when times get tough, what do we have to fall back on? God's word and how God has already treated us. Number three, be quick to share. Don't you love it when you come into a group of people and one person says, I was thinking this about God. And the next person says, wow, I had just read this other thing about God. And pretty soon before you know it, there's been 15 minutes that gone by where all you have been doing is delighting in who God is. Guess what? Gratitude fuels gratitude. We can obey this command to give thanks 
by sharing the blessings that God gives. But now I want to come into a narrow application and hone in on the public acknowledgement that's commanded of us. There are many ways that this should play its way out when we're in church on Wednesday and when we're in church on Sunday and when we're with other believers throughout the week. Yes, we are giving thanks and acknowledging who God is, but I love this command because this command, by the way, is something we can do before we leave here today and publicly acknowledge the goodness of God as shown through the steadfast love of God. There's actually some precedent for this happening throughout Israel's history. Although this psalm doesn't have a superscript telling us who wrote it, there are only so many places where, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever, appears in our Old Testament. I'm going to list off almost all of them now. The first time it appears, it's in the psalm of David in 1 Chronicles. Maybe David's even the author. That's the traditional view of this psalm. It then appears in Solomon's life, when Solomon is bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle, and the, the, uh, the musicians that he has there are there crying out, He is good, His mercy endures forever. The dedication of the first temple, the dedication of the second temple in Ezra chapter 3 also. All of these community times were times where they publicly acknowledged who God is and what He's done and said His steadfast love endures. And we just got off of a time in our church schedule where we do the same thing, do we not? We proclaim at Easter the steadfast love of our God. And so what I would like to do today is obey this command to publicly acknowledge God together by reading through the psalm together, but doing it a little bit differently because I can. You might have heard me stumble through this phrase a few times. Key, like your car keys. Let olam. Forever. Chasdo. See that little dot underneath the H? It's like Bach. It's not batch. It's not Bach. Bach. Chasdo. Because forever is his steadfast love. Can you indulge me? Can we practice it? You ready? Ki le olam chasdo. A little bit faster. Ki le olam chasdo. Again. Ki le olam chasdo. Good job. You are all invited to take Hebrew 1 next semester. What we're going to do then is we're going to obey the command here. And in a moment, I'm going to have you stand. Because that's the way they would have done it for the temple's dedications. I will read the first part of the verse. The first part of the verse will be on there. And then you will triumphantly proclaim, not quite your native tongue, but you know what it means. His steadfast love endures. And in doing that, we will not only obey, but we also will encourage. So will you stand with me? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. O oh, give thanks to the Lord of Lords. He 
To him alone who doth great wonders. To him that by wisdom made the heavens. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters. To him that made great lights. The sun to rule by day. The moon and stars to rule by night. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn. And brought out Israel among them. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. To him which led his people through the wilderness. To him which smote great kings. And slew famous kings. Sihon, king of Amorites. Og, the king of Bashan. Gave their land as an heritage. Even a heritage unto Israel, his servant. Who remembered us in our low estate. And hath redeemed us from our enemies. Who gives food to all flesh. Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven. Our God, the God of heaven, God of gods and Lord of lords. We have just recounted the reasons why we can trust in your steadfast love. But there are so much more that we have in Jesus Christ that shows your steadfast love to us. We pray that you will help us to be grateful, help us to be full of praise, and give us boldness to publicly acknowledge the fact that you are our perfect God, and your steadfast love endures forever. And now, as we began singing, to God be the glory, great things you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.